So we are in Corinthians, and last week we did chapter 12, and we're going to go into 13 tonight, and 14 probably, because since 13 is a short chapter. And the subject, broadly speaking, is going to be spiritual gifts. So last week in 1 Corinthians 12, the first half was talking about spiritual gifts, and then the second one was talking about parts of the body. If it's a hand, and everything's a hand, you don't have any eyes, you know, that kind of thing. So what I want to do is I want to come back to 1 Corinthians 12, 4, read the list of spiritual gifts, skip over the one body metaphor, and then go on to chapter 13, and then from 13 on, because it's all talking about spiritual gifts. And you need to keep in mind the context of the letter, because what Paul is dealing with is new believers in the Corinthian church who have a taste of the gifts of the Spirit, a taste of the power of the Spirit, and they've gotten all puffed up. So what's happened is somebody says, well, I have this gift, and I'm much better than you are because my gift is better than your gift, kind of thing. Hence, the metaphor of the body sort of like the old acting thing. There are no small parts, only small actors. All of these gifts are necessary for the body, and all of the gifts are given for the body. So let me read the paragraph starting with verse 4 in chapter 12, and we'll lift off from there. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So verse 7 is sort of your keystone there. The idea that these gifts of the Spirit are given by God for the common good. They are not given for the aggrandizement of the one who gets them. So verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the idea here is who gets what is decided by the Spirit, not by the recipient. And what the Spirit does is gives those gifts to be used for the benefit of the body, not for the aggrandizement of the one who receives them. So the tone of the whole letter has been, you guys have a little bit of knowledge and you have been given gifts by God and so forth, and you're misusing them. When you, for example, come together to eat, some of you are bringing a banquet and some of you barely have anything to eat and you're not sharing. Some of you, obviously here, have been given one gift or another and are just all excited and puffed up because I've got a gift of healing or whatever it is. And certainly a gift of healing is far better than a mere gift of tongues. So the, the tone of this whole letter is, back off, cowboy. You're not the one who decides who gets what's gift, and the gift is for the benefit of the body. It is not for the benefit of the recipient. 
And then he goes through the part where he talks about everybody being members of one body. So then at the end of chapter 12, I'm going to pick it up at verse 27. So 1 Corinthians 12, 27, after the, the riff on the parts of the body. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the obvious answer to all of those rhetorical questions is no. Not everybody has a gift of healing, not everybody speaks in tongues, not everybody are prophets, and so forth. So those are all rhetorical questions. So verse 31 now. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So the more excellent way is by way of correction to the problems they have. This is not an independent riff on love. This is a riff in the context of, hey, you guys are operating in pride as opposed to operating as a servant who has a gift that has been given by God for use for the benefit of the body. So chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So again, this is in the context of a correction or rebuke. So what he's saying is, you folks have got these gifts that you've been given, and you're using that gift as a vehicle to aggrandize yourself, and what you're not doing is exhibiting love of your brother in the use of these gifts. Because remember, he said earlier, you are also not exhibiting love of your brother when you come together to eat. Because the rich ones are eating well and the poor ones have nothing and you're not sharing. So the problem here is you are not a community. You are a group of individuals who have not come together in love. So this love chapter is a corrective for that problem. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It takes no notice of wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And you can take from that paragraph that that is exactly what they are not doing. They are not being patient and kind. They are envious and boastful. They are arrogant and rude. They do insist on their own way. They are irritable and resentful. And the previous parts of the letter bear all that out. So now down to verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And this is what I was talking about on Shabbat. The spiritual realm is where ultimate reality is. The physical realm that we inhabit is a creation of the spiritual realm. So the creator, if you will, is in a sense 
more permanent and real than the creation. And we know, of course, that the creation we live in is going to be, in fact, rolled up and reformed. So what Paul is saying here is, you guys got gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit is what's real. You are a creation of the Spirit. And understand that all of this stuff that you have while you're living in this created body is going to pass away. So what you want to do is you want to connect with the permanent things. And of course, the permanent thing in this context is love. That's the thing that is going to transcend what we have here. This is the argument he's making. And just as sort of an aside, lots of people read this chapter in isolation. And I'm suggesting that that's not the way to read it. You need to read this chapter in context to understand what he's actually saying. So I am all the way down to verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the idea here is the only thing that is going to transcend to the new world is love. And while I am here in this world, my view of what it's going to be like is partial. It is not complete. It is not clear. It is dark and dim. All I really have is the Word of God, which is wonderful, but it really doesn't talk very much about the afterlife. It gives you the clear indication there is one, but it doesn't spend a lot of time talking about that. It actually doesn't spend very much time talking about God. What it spends most of its time talking about is us and explains to us who and what we are and what our relation is and ought to be to our Creator. And it then gives us information on how we should navigate this world that we are placed in. And what Paul is saying is, there is so much more, and from our perspective here in the created world, we can't see that. Or we can only see it dimly. And the other part is, when I was a child, I spoke like a child and so forth. I'm not sure which way to take that. There's two ways that the, the part, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Since it's when he became a man, he gave up childish ways. I think it probably is directed at them. You're acting like a bunch of children. I've got this gift, mine. You can't have my gift. It could also be less probably that when I transitioned to my next phase of my life, I will then be fully adult. In other words, when I pass through death and go on to resurrection and I'm in the next phase of my life, at that point I will be fully an adult because I will know things that I only see dimly now. I find it kind of unfortunate that so much of the Sunday church reads chapter 13 in isolation. It should not be taken in isolation, it should be taken in context. So 13.13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now faith, hope, and love are all spiritual or soulish things. They are not of the body, because the body is not going to survive. And in others of his letters, what Paul does is explains that the body that you are living in right now is going to become a seed that you're going to sow in the ground, the grave, 
And from that seed is going to come the resurrection body. So, I'm going to run my own bunny here. What is a seed? A seed is information. So what a seed is, is all of the information needed to make an oak tree. Very little of the material needed to make an oak tree. There's enough material there for germination and stuff, but all the material to make an oak tree comes from the surrounding environment. It is not within the seed. What the seed is, is the plan or the pattern for an oak tree. So what Paul is saying is your body that you are living in now, which you are going to plant in the grave, is in fact the seed from which your resurrection body will be created. So if a seed is information, then what is the purpose of the life you are living now? To build that seed, to put information into that seed. So what you are in this life will influence what you will be in the resurrection. We'll recognize each other and so forth. It isn't going to be a starting over. I mean, material it will be. But the information that you put into the seed that you are putting into the grave is going to be the basis for the body that is raised. Faith, hope, and love. Faith is the mechanism by which spiritual things are made physical. So faith is the thing that causes stuff to happen. Hope is a direction, a goal setter. What is it you want? So I hope that the stock market will go up tomorrow. It's an expression of desire. And then, of course, love is relational. So as you read chapter 13, take it in the context of the rest of the letter. So now on to chapter 14. We're going to earnestly desire some gifts. Back in 1231, it says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And he lists the gifts in order. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. I am sort of assuming that that's a canonical list. In other words, that the list is in some kind of an order. Because he then says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now we get down to chapter 14. It says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now we need to talk about prophesying here. And he is self-defining. So chapter 13, 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. So prophetic power is understanding of mysteries and knowledge. Now that's different than the office of a prophet. A prophet is somebody who speaks for God to the people, usually to the king, but not always. So the office of a prophet is somebody who is chosen by God for the purpose of speaking to Israel. So Yeshua was a prophet, Isaiah was a prophet, Ezekiel was a prophet, and the books in the Bible are accounts of their prophetic mission, what they did in the office of prophet. And in Israel, there are three voices. The first voice is the voice of the priest. And what does the priest talk about? Divides clean and unclean, divides holy and common, and teaches the Torah. So the duty of a priest is to handle those three functions. That's his task. The voice of a prophet is someone who is picked by God for the purpose of speaking God's word to usually the king, sometimes the people at large. So Moses, as a prophet, would speak to the people at large. There was no king at that point, so he wasn't speaking to the king. 
in later parts of the Bible, generally when you got a prophet is when things were going off the rails and God would send a prophet to go grab the king by the stacking swivel and say, hey, O king, I'm going to talk and you're going to listen and give him the word of God and try and get him jerked back into line. And in the absence of the king, for example, in the time of the judges, prophets could be more general. And then the third voice in Israel is the voice of the king. And that's the voice of human or earthly wisdom. So when Paul here is talking to a bunch of Gentiles who are not Israelites, he's not talking about the office of a prophet. So it is not the case that one of these Corinthians is going to saddle up and head off to Jerusalem and speak the word of God to the king. That's not going to happen. So prophecy in this case is knowledge and wisdom about a situation. And I will give you an example. I've used this example before. Some of you have heard it. Some of you haven't. I'm an introvert. My dad told me very early in life that a closed mouth gathers no fist. So I am very careful, or try to be very careful, about what I say to people. One of the things that's happened to me in this job as a pastor is when I pray for people, things will come to me. And my initial reaction years ago when I started it, I can't say that. That would be embarrassing, and it might make the person mad, and I I just can't say something like that. I have learned to trust that, because that is prophecy in the sense of Corinthians. So what I am able to do is I am able to speak into a situation and speak accurately and speak words that the person needs to hear. That's prophecy. God speaking through me into a specific situation of somebody who needs to hear it. And it doesn't have to be correction. I mean, it can be any number of things. But that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about prophecy. We are not talking about somebody mounting up and heading to Jerusalem and walking into the throne room and talking to the king. All right, so let's pick up 14 again now. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gift, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, let's talk about speaking in tongues and so forth. There are a number of different interpretations of what's being said here. First place is if you go back to the upper room at Shavuot, when tongues of fire fell upon the apostles in the upper room. They started speaking in other tongues, and the tongues that they were speaking in were known languages that were not known to them. So, for example, if there was somebody from Cappadocia or somebody from Cyrene or somebody from Spain or something like that, there would be an apostle that would be able to speak the gospel to that person in his native language, even though the apostle himself did not know that language. So it would be like Susanna is Brazilian. If Kay were to walk up to Susanna and start explaining the gospel to her in clear, fluent Portuguese, what you would have is what happened in the upper room. That's manifestation number one. 
There's another possibility here, which is speaking in a spiritual language that nobody understands. And Paul mentions that here. What he's saying is, one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, one of the things that happens over and over and over again in the Old Testament, starting in the Torah, is the Spirit falls on people and they begin to prophesy. Sort of the poster child for that is Eldad and Medad. When they set up 70 elders and they were supposed to show up at the tent of meeting to be anointed, Eldad and Medad were among the 70, but they did not show up. So they were out in the middle of the camp. And the Spirit fell on the 70 elders and on Eldad and Medad, and everybody around them said, Whoa, Moses, these folks are prophesying, make them stop. The question is, how does anybody know that these people are prophesying? And the answer that I have, which is not scriptural, this is genealogy, is they were speaking in an unknown tongue. Same thing happens to Saul. It happened when Peter goes to Cornelius' house. And the Spirit falls on the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, and they begin to prophesy. What's that mean? It means that they're not speaking in Latin, and they're not speaking in Aramaic, and they're not speaking in Greek. They're speaking in something else. And they are speaking in a language that they didn't know before. So, what Paul is talking about here, at least as I read it, is this second type of speaking in tongues. And I will give you genealogy of what I think that means. One of the things that happens when we pray is we think about what we're saying. I'm praying in the morning, talking to God, and I'm thinking about what I'm saying. You know, what am I going to say next? How am I going to phrase this? What, what, you know, what am I going to talk to him about? What am I going to say? Now, if I'm asking for something, what am I going to ask for? You know, all of those things are going through your mind. It is my opinion, belief is probably too strong a word, that what happens when you speak in an unknown tongue is you get out of the way. In other words, I have no idea what I'm saying when I'm speaking in tongue, which means that I'm not getting in the way. There's something that God wants said, and he doesn't want me in the way, but he wants to use my voice. Why does he want to use my voice? Because I'm a man. Men have dominion on the earth. I am a man. So when I say stuff, it has power on the earth. Everything that God says in Scripture is said by a man. It's said by Moses. Well, not, not quite, I'm sorry. The utterance from Sinai was God directly. But everything else is said through Moses or Aaron or a prophet or something, right? It has to be spoken by a man to be effective in the earth because we have dominion. He gave it to us. I mean, if he hadn't given it to us, there's nothing we could do about it. If he had a different policy, there's nothing we could do about it. But that's his policy, and he seems to stick to it. So when he needs a man's voice to get something done, I believe that he finds somebody who is willing to speak in tongues, and he says, all right, get out of the way, boy, I need your voice. And stuff comes out of your mouth that you have no idea what it means, and you can't think about it, and you can't decide what it's going to be because you don't know what it is. And by the way, I have complete control over whether I speak in tongues. In other words, I don't want to speak in tongues, I stop. 
by an act of my own will. It is not the case that something takes me over. It is I essentially volunteer and say, okay, God, I got a voice for you. You need something said. And he does. What created all of this? Speech. God said. God said, let there be. And there was. So speech is what created everything that we see here. And speech is just information. The sound waves are just the vehicle by which the information is carried. It's sort of like I have a little recorder here, and it's recording my voice. Well, my voice isn't the recorder. The recorder is simply the medium. Going back to our example of the seed, the seed is just information. But you need the nutrient and all that kind of stuff for the information to be instantiated into a tree. Everything is words. And so if God needs something said, since men have been given dominion, it has to be said by a man. So he has prophets, and everything about the Messiah is spoken by prophets, because it had to be spoken by a man before it could happen. So you have a thousand years of prophecy where Isaiah and Ezekiel and all those guys spoke parts of the story of the Messiah. It had to be spoken by a man. And when it finally was all in place, then you had the incarnation and Yeshua showed up, who himself was a man, and now his voice has power. So when I speak in tongues, myself, in a language I don't understand, I'm doing two things. I am speaking to God, and it will say in a minute that I'm edifying my own spirit, but nobody else's. I'm doing that. I'm also saying that I am available to you, God, if you need something said, use my voice. I have complete control over whether I make my voice available to God or not. That's something that I choose to give him, and he then has the ability, if he chooses, to make use of it, but I don't know whether he did or not. So verse 3 again now. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So an uninterpreted tongue between me and God doesn't do anything except for me, is what he's saying. He is not saying that I shouldn't do it. And in fact, later on, he'll say, I talk in tongues more than y'all do. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. The idea is if you're going to speak in an unknown tongue in a gathering, you need to make sure that there's someone there who can interpret. Otherwise, you're just making noise. Six. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many languages in the world, and none without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So and one of the things I am inferring here is, just like Cornelius and the crowd, 
who had the Spirit fall on them and they were speaking in unknown tongues, people were coming into church and just showing off. And what Paul is saying is, glad you got gift of tongues, that's really cool, but in the congregation among yourselves, don't use it unless you have someone who can interpret. Verse 13, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What did I just say about speaking in tongues? My mind is out of the way. Because when I pray in a language that I know, I am busy thinking about what I'm going to say. Don't want to say anything really stupid to God. I want to make sure my words are orderly and everything is exactly what I want to say. Right? I've got a little squirrel up here just turning the cage like mad when I pray to God. But when I pray in a tongue, the squirrel is silent because the squirrel doesn't have any idea what's being said, which is what Paul is saying here. Verse 14 again, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praises with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say Amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. So here's Paul now. I thank God that I speak tongues more than you all. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct brothers than 10,000 words in a tongue. He doesn't have any problem when he's all by himself in private speaking in an unknown tongue, but when he's in a group, it's just noise unless there's somebody to interpret. In our service, we are delighted if people have the gift of tongues. And if you feel moved to use them, it is appropriate provided you have someone to interpret. In other words, say, I think I have a word, but it's in an unknown tongue. Does someone here have a gift of interpretation? And if someone raises his hand, then off you go. If nobody raises his hand, remain silent. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This is a quote from Isaiah 28. And what that is, in context in Isaiah, is you guys have gone off the rails. And so what I'm going to do is I am going to whistle up a herd of Babylonians or a herd of Assyrians, and they're going to come and talk to you, but they're going to talk to you in a tongue you don't understand. That's the context of that, is that you're going to be invaded and conquered. Verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is a manifestation of prophecy, as I was talking about earlier, where someone speaks knowledge that is 
hidden or wisdom that is hidden. Again, I've used my example of when I pray for people and lay hands on people, very often things will come to my mind and I will say them. They are generally pretty accurate. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Somebody will come into the congregation and if the congregation is prophesying, what will be said is something that strikes at the heart of that person and he will fall down and worship because the body has spoken things about himself that were not known. So I am going to stop there. We'll pick it up at verse 26 next time. 